you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. Wow, this is my 100th episode. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for listening, for my patron members supporting our work, and for my team's continued efforts to care and nurture this little show of ours that now has nearly 300,000 downloads. It's been a ton of work, but also fun and something that we're proud of. So I'm raising a glass and saying cheers to all of you for being fans of this podcast and the live show, and here's to the next 100. In this episode, I'm joined by Lucas Gentili and Rich Burrows of Loft Labs. Rich is the senior developer advocate there, and Lucas is the CEO and co-founder of Loft Labs. And as a part of their offering for Kubernetes, they released a vCluster open source project about a year ago. And I had not previously heard of it, or maybe I'd heard of it and didn't know what it was, but I certainly had not checked it out until these two reached out to be on the show. And it was fun to hang out with these two. So let's talk about the vCluster real quick. This is a little bit of an extra long show because it turned out that this was quite an interesting way to run Kubernetes inside Kubernetes. And at first, I didn't really see all the potential for what this could mean or why I would really want to run this other than just maybe for quick testing something, right? We had great questions from the audience, lots of questions, in fact, and we had a demo in the middle of which we don't have in this podcast, but you can watch that demo on the YouTube live that'll be linked in the podcast show notes in your podcast player. But I actually now I'm excited about this project and look forward to what they're going to do with it next. It's quite a universal tool for running a full-fledged Kubernetes cluster for dev environments, for test environments, even for potential production environments. And Rich and Lucas break down a ton of the ways this is currently being used and where they see this going in the future. So please enjoy this episode of vCluster with Rich and Lucas. Welcome to the show, and my name is Brett. Well, let's get to it. On the show today, I've got a couple of pros right out of Loft Labs. We've got Lucas, the CEO and co-founder of Loft Labs. And then we've got Rich. I've been talking to these people on Twitter for a while now. In fact, Rich and I realized we've known each other for years on the internet. So uh, it's always great to have uh, fellow internet friends on the show. Welcome. I, I see you managed to get out of mispronouncing Lucas's last name. So that was very slick. Lucas Gentili. <laughs> I'm going to say it the American way. And Rich Burroughs, if I talk fast enough, then no one notices. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I'm I'm fine with anyway. <laughs> Ida pronunciation yeah, is fine. Thanks for having yeah. us on, Brett. It's really good to be here. It is, and yeah, I'm yeah. glad to have you both on. And we're now two weeks in a row with multiple guests. So this is up in my game. This is making me actually pretend to know what I'm talking about and be the show host. So thanks for being here, and thanks for dealing with all of my inconsistencies. 
So we're talking about uh, vCluster today. And for those of you, if I say vServer or vAnything else, I apologize. We've been joking that I've already called it the wrong name five times now. So vCluster is a project that is near and dear to your hearts, it sounds like. But before we get into that, let's understand your background and how you got where you're at. So Lucas, you're first. You're co-founder of Loft Labs. Tell me about that. How did you get to where you're at? Yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO of the company right now. And unfortunately, I don't get to code as much uh, as I would like to anymore. Someone has to raise funds, hire people and build out the business, talk to customers. But I'm an engineer at heart. And it's really hard for me to always, you know, not dive into the pull requests that uh, the rest of the team is opening up. And I'm always envying their life on being able to ship features every day. Yeah, I got here. I've been, I guess, on the startup journey pretty much all my life. I started building custom websites and stuff like that when I was in high school and all throughout college. Always had a company going kind of side hustle. And yeah, I was running a more of a consultancy and custom software development company in Germany when the whole Docker Kubernetes wave came up. We did a lot of things with containers, and then we built an open source project called DevSpace, originally internally for our own use, and then that became pretty popular. We started diving more into the space, and essentially that's, you know, when my co-founder and me, he was essentially the first hire in my previous company. We saw an opportunity there to fix some kind of the developer experience and some areas in terms of Kubernetes multi-tenancy, and that's when we started Loft Labs. Nice. The show isn't focused on Loft Labs, but... It's obviously a lot of where the inspiration for this came from, for this project. So what's the elevator pitch for Loft Labs real quick, just so I understand what, what it's about? Yeah, it's great. We're <laughs> essentially helping you scale self-service access to Kubernetes from really 10 to 10,000 10, engineers. So the idea is really when you want to have, when you're looking at Docker, a lot of engineers can essentially just download in a, on their local machine, run things like uh, Docker build, Docker run. Docker is such a great developer experience, right? And then you see that migration towards Kubernetes. You see Ops is really excited about Kubernetes, you know, production workloads moving there, CICD pipelines moving there. And then you look at your engineering teams and they're not quite as excited as about Kubernetes <laughs> from a like developer perspective than they are with Docker, just because there's so much complexity there. So when you want to enable a large number of your engineering teams to be able to work with Kubernetes, you essentially need to facilitate how do you provision Kubernetes for them? Because it's not like you can spin up an individual EKS cluster for everybody. If everybody manages their own little pet Minikube cluster, that is right. quite difficult, breaks often. It's kind of tough as well. It, you know, your fans are going to go crazy. Your laptop's going to be burning, right? What we allow you to do is essentially spin up these virtual clusters that run on top of a shared like EKS cluster. So an engineer can literally run a single command. They have a fully fledged Kubernetes cluster, but it's a virtual cluster. So it's really cheap. We can put it to sleep when you're not using it. You can have 10 of them and switch back and forth between them. It's a really great experience in terms of self-service. And then we have DevSpace, our open source developer tool on top of that, that essentially facilitates that kind of workflow with Kubernetes. You know, how do I stand up my application and its dependencies? How do I hot reload containers inside that Kubernetes cluster? When I change a line of code, that's essentially the two core things that we focus on. How do you make the self-service provisioning part easy for the organization, for IT to kind of give people access to Kubernetes? And then on the other side, how do we improve the productivity and the developer experience for engineers? That's really the core uh, focus areas of our company. Nice. Yeah, that's sort of a theme of Kubernetes, right? Is that it was made for ops, not for devs, but devs are having to learn it. <laughs> they're, they're now responsible right. for at least some part of it. Well, thanks. Rich, okay, so how did you get to Loft Labs? 
So it's a long story, but I'll give you the shorter version. So I started off as a sysadmin in like the mid nineties, working at an internet provider, which is actually a pretty common origin story, you know, because suddenly right. everybody needed sysadmins. And I was somebody who just, I just was messing around with Linux as a hobby. I loved it and, and it turned into a job. And so spent many years working in operations for lots of different companies like WebMD and Puppet. And eventually was looking around and I had not heard of Loft Labs at all. Lucas contacted me out of the blue. I had never heard of the company. I, I didn't know what to expect. And I started looking into it and, you know, I had lots of friends in the Kubernetes community and heard many complaints about multi-tenancy problems. And having worked in operations myself, along with developers, I knew how important self-service is, right? Because I was sometimes the person that somebody else was waiting on to do a thing. And right. sometimes I was waiting on someone else, like the firewall team or whoever, to do a thing for me. And so I just was so impressed by the solutions they had to solve these really important problems. So I joined the last April, so almost a year now. Nice. Nice. One of the questions was where the name Loft came from. Oh, that's a good question. I think we were just brainstorming what is a very short name that we can, that is not kind of trademarked in our field. <laughs> yeah. We're running out. I guess out. Loft sounded very natural to us. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I like it. it. It makes me think of like, chill. I'm in a loft. I'm just chilling. So I don't know if that's the vibe yeah. you're going DM, for. But DMware was already taken. So, <laughs> so yeah. We yeah. couldn't use that one. I just wanted to say hi. It's really cool seeing all these people pop in from all over the world. You've really got a, a, a really cool group of fans. Yeah, I'm very lucky. And these people are great for me. So we've got regulars and I love it. I love people coming back, asking hard questions. They always, they, I think they're, you know, sometimes we, I feel like, where's that question? Like, where are we going to be here to troubleshoot your issue for the next 20 minutes? But hey, that's why we're here. We're all uh, doing this stuff for real. So let's talk about it. But uh, vCluster. It sounds like it was in inspired out of Loft Labs and the product you were creating. And this feels like a project for a thing I need that I didn't know I needed until I learned about it. And then I think, oh yeah, I definitely want this. So uh, Rich, what's the origin story for vCluster? Yeah, so I, I wasn't around for the very beginning of it. It already sort of existed by the time I showed up, but I can tell you the reason why it exists. The reason why it exists, multi-tenancy is really tough, right, with Kubernetes. And so there's pretty much two models that people use. The one model is I've got a shared cluster for everybody and we do namespace isolation. So an individual or a team gets their own namespace and that's what they have access to. And the hard part about that is that there are global objects, you know, and so teams might be developing something like a, a CRD and they can't manage that. And then the other option is the cluster-based isolation, which is basically, you know, the Oprah thing, look under your seat and you've got a cluster, everybody gets a cluster. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. The big one is that it's a management headache. There's also a lot of costs associated with running all these different clusters, right? And there was a really great talk that I reference a lot, Holly Cummins from IBM did a keynote at KubeCon a few years ago about the environmental impact of all these clusters right. that are out there running. They're running workloads and nobody's even using them half the time, you know? So that's sort of the problem, right? Is that multi this multi-tenancy is really hard. Kubernetes just wasn't really designed for it, right? right? And so what the virtual clusters do is they give you a way to share a cluster, but give people an experience that feels to them like they have their own dedicated cluster. Right. Which 
If you would have asked me how to do that in Kubernetes, I'd say, "Uh, I don't really think that's possible. But you're just proving me yet again that I don't know what I'm talking about and that there's obviously a ton of potential for uses for this. But one of the challenges is has always been, I think, for Kubernetes is it's one thing, it's hard to set up one cluster it becomes much harder to set up 20. And because the assumption is that none of those are going to live forever and then you're going to be replacing them or constantly upgrading them all and you know multiple times a year if you're a good person and you're, and you're, and you're paying attention to all the security vulnerabilities that come out about this stuff. But there's we definitely are, I feel like, still in the middle of figuring out how do we manage all this complexity in a way that's sustainable for small teams? Because I don't know anyone who's got spare time. I, I, I keep trying to... Meet, find engineers that are like, yeah, you know, I could really use another 10 hours of work in my week. Like, <laughs> could, you, could you give me something? Oh, great. I'm now the Kubernetes admin. Great. I just lost half of my free time. So let's get into it. I just want to mention one thing real quick, Brett, that I should have, is that I just want to point out that this is open source, right? So right. these virtual clusters were initially built into our commercial product, but then I'd say it was about nine months ago, we, we open sourced it. And so the project is called the cluster it's on github you can use it for free and we've had a lot of interest from people people have been really excited about this because it really is a different way to kind of approach how you share clusters with your engineers yeah yeah so is this a cncf project yet i'm trying to remember not yet but i think we're in a good path to actually putting it in cncf we haven't quite made that step yet because vcluster is not even a year old at this point yeah. i think when we launched it we just launched it last year so we've gotten a ton of feedback we see a lot of people even you know we just shipped the plugin system for it as well and people take that away and start writing extensions for it it's pretty crazy so we're realizing the potential for vcluster and i think for us, the goal is because again, like vCluster is Apache 2 license. It's kind of designed to be put in CNCF. And for us, it's just important to see, okay, we have something that is actually stable and works for a lot of companies before we uh, make that step. But yeah, we'll definitely, I, I can probably spoil that we're going to do that sometime this year. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you only get that CNCF blog announcement about a project going uh, sandbox once so <laughs> you might as well be ready as you can for that so good luck and <laughs> I, I assumed that it was on either that path or already there because it does seem like a very uh, natural fit to the cncf communities so how does vcluster compare to kubernetes hierarchical namespaces oh that's actually an awesome question <laughs> how someone Someone's diving deep into other options as well. Yeah, so what hierarchical, I mean, everybody kind of knows what namespaces are in Kubernetes, right? It's like you're prefixing names in Kubernetes effectively, right? To be able to call a deployment database and then call another deployment database. You put them in two different namespaces and suddenly it's not a naming conflict anymore, right? What hierarchical namespaces allows you to do is you create a base namespace and then you inherit certain things from that namespace. So let's say you want to share Kubernetes cluster and you create a network policy in one namespace, you can now allow people to spin up their own namespace that inherits, you know, these kind of isolation resources from that central namespace. The limitation of that, though, is um, you still cannot use any cluster-wide objects, right? You're restricted to your namespace. Mm -hmm. That means you can only create namespaced objects. That means you can create deployments and services and pods, right? But you can't add a CRD to the cluster. Right. You can't change the Kubernetes version. You can't add a storage class, right? Because to do any of those things, you need to be a cluster admin. And vCluster actually gives you more than just a namespace. It gives you a fully-fledged cluster that runs inside of a namespace. That's a 
fantastic explanation. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm very curious about that too. So th yeah, that's a great point because it's not often that you realize all of the cluster level stuff you need to do until you don't have cluster admin <laughs> and you, and you, you feel kind of handicapped. You're like, I don't know how I can get anything done. I want to install my cool CRD or my new controller that I, my, my favorite new tool or whatever. Yeah. So that, that does get very problematic very fast. Yeah. It's not just CRDs and those kind of things. It's also things, let's say your team, your engineering team starts to architect things in a way that you have a microservice that has a dependent microservice that is supposed to be in a different namespace, right? If you have hierarchical namespaces or for that matter, any kind of isolated namespace, and you have a network policy in place that only allows you to connect with pods inside your namespace. What are you going to do now with when you decide to actually split up an application across namespaces, right? That may be a valid choice. And then you need to make exceptions to your network policies. Who's going to maintain these exceptions? There are a whole variety yeah. of these problems. And that's when we saw them, because originally what we did in the commercial product was essentially just self-service for namespaces, right? Kind of what hierarchical namespaces does. We did in our commercial product, self-service for isolated namespaces. And then our customers were telling us, oh, now my engineers need CRDs and my engineers want to communicate across <laughs> namespace. My engineers want to do this, right? And we were thinking like, dang, right? Now we have to tell them, make all these exceptions. And then here's how you manage these exceptions, right? And that just gets out of hand. So we were thinking about, isn't there a smarter way? And then we built virtual cluster originally in the commercial product. And then from there, we, we just saw such a great potential in the underlying technology of spinning up these virtual clusters that we decided, hey, we got to open source that and open it up to other folks and see what they're going to do with it. <laughs> and that's how vCluster essentially got started. Yeah. Maybe a question for later, but how do you deal with system updates and K8s upgrades gracefully with vCluster? Now, I don't know if that question is about the host cluster or the vCluster inside of it, but <laughs> I guess assume both. Yeah, I think for the host cluster, in the end, like vCluster itself runs as a pod inside your cluster, right? So if you want to upgrade the host cluster, you always have to think about what happens to workloads, right? The same consideration applies for vCluster. And then I think if you're having a newer host version, that's usually not a problem because essentially your uh, Kubernetes is pretty downward compatible. So that shouldn't be a huge issue. We're also just relying on a subset of resources to be the same between the host cluster and the virtual cluster. One of them is obviously pod, right? The pod spec needs to be the same between the two or downward compatible at least. And I don't think pod spec has changed so much, at least in a breaking way, right? <laughs> I haven't seen anything recently that would change the pod spec. And I don't think uh, anyone in the Kubernetes community would want to do a breaking change. They're really trying hard to avoid breaking changes. Yeah, exactly. And Fantastic. I think for upgrading the virtual cluster, that's an interesting question. It's literally just changing out an image tag, pretty much. It depends a little bit on what distro you're running, because the funny thing about vCluster is also, vCluster itself is a certified, you know, Kubernetes distribution. Kubernetes. That means we, we pass the CNCF compliance test, just like EKS and GKE and K3S. That means you, you it works the same way as a regular Kubernetes cluster. But the funny thing is you can actually choose which distro it runs, which API server it runs. So you can run a vCluster based on K3S or based on Kubernetes upstream or based on EKS. The AWS team recently contributed that. With Mirantis, we added K0S recently. So it's funny, you can have an EKS cluster that in the end runs K3S inside a namespace and a different namespace, there's K0S, right? <laughs> there's different options. And then regarding upgrades, you have to look at that specific distro that you're actually running. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
use cases all also come into it, right? Because I think that a lot of the use cases that people are going to use vCluster for are going to be more ephemeral things, you know, a dev environment or spinning up systems under test in a CICD pipeline. And they probably don't even care about upgrading the cluster, right? They're just going to spin up new ones with the, the new version. Nice. That's I, something that I never actually thought about was actually running other, you know, like I, I've everyone's probably heard of Kind, the Kubernetes and Docker variant or distribution. And I always use that as an example of an easy way to spin up a cluster when you need it for testing or local machine. But it's its own distro. So it's got its own nuances that aren't always obvious when you start using it. And there's tons of people that love keys, that love K3S. Like they're K3S all the way, all day long, right? And for those people, you know, they want to stick with their distro. And so it's actually, I think that's a really interesting idea to allow you to deploy other distros, not necessarily your, only your own distro, I guess, is yeah, the vCluster. Yeah. So vCluster can run vCluster, but vCluster can also run K3S or... I mean, it needs it needs an API server. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we, we don't yeah have it a needs an API, API server. That's what, yeah. what sits inside the namespace. And we started off with K3S and... This feedback came from people in the community. You know, people came to us and there was somebody who was a big fan of K0S and they were like, can you add that? And so we did. And that's been one of the great things about this project is that people have been really excited about it. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback and a lot of it has kind of helped the, the project grow. Yeah. All right. A few more questions. What about running production workloads on vCluster? Do you see this happening? Oh, that's a very interesting question. So in the beginning, again, we, we started out with these ephemeral environments and focusing on, on dev environments. CICD, it's really great to be able to spin up in three seconds, you know, fully fledged cluster right. instead of having to wait 20 minutes for EKS to start in your pipeline. That's not even, I don't think anyone does that because it's so long, right? And then obviously the next step is kind of looking into, hey, can we also use that in production somehow, right? And we have seen customers put it in production. Um, I don't have any example that I'm publicly allowed to speak about because obviously <laughs> people are kind of scared about talking about this when it's not, you know, when they're just starting out with it, but they need to see if it actually works at scale. But we do have a couple of pretty large customers uh, on the commercial side of things that are now exploring vCluster in production. And that's super exciting to see because vCluster is very lightweight and it encapsulates everything application specific inside these vClusters which is something that you really value in production. Because when you're thinking about it, let's say you have a multi-tenant product, right? And you host, you can either host different customers in different Kubernetes clusters, which is really scattered. And you have to have all this common stack, you know, monitoring, logging, managing these clusters. Everything's replicated, a lot of work. So a couple of customers thought about, hey, if we put them in vCluster, certain things can be shared. Like that monitoring and logging for the actual parts, for the actual workloads would be shared, but then our own CRDs that we're shipping to host these multi-tenant environments, they would be isolated. So we can upgrade customers individually, right? Because if you upgrade a CRD, it's cluster wide. It's right. all or nothing, right? <laughs> right. Are you really going to run multiple customers in the same Kubernetes cluster? It's really difficult today. The cluster really makes that possible now. And another thing is when you're actually hosting you know, when you're hitting in a way, almost like the scalability limits of Kubernetes, there's a lot of requests to etcd into your API server. But now with vCluster, everybody gets their own, every part of your system gets their own API server. So you can essentially shard your cluster in a way 
and your underlying host mm. cluster has much less workload and it can be much dumber, right? Right. Because that Kubernetes version, these flags and upgrading can be done by a system, by microservice, by component, however you divide up your system. It doesn't have to be that global massive operation in a 5,000 node cluster anymore, right? Right. That's really, really interesting in production in terms of reducing kind of management effort for these production workloads and increase resilience. That's actually a really interesting. While you're talking about it, I'm realizing that I actually already know people that have a, a need like this. They don't know that they need it yet. But th once a company gets big enough and like central IT starts to take over or run the Kubernetes clusters, but developers want API access, they want to roll their own CRDs. One team likes Flux, <laughs> one likes Argo. You know, there's, and the team, as the teams invest in their own Kubernetes more, they're less tolerant of sort of an IT overlord telling them that, no, 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 we're running this version of Argo. That's all we run in the cluster. This is how we set yep. it up. And everybody has to obey by that, right? And they don't want to run thousand different versions of Kubernetes cluster design. And I don't blame them. Like I'm, I am one of those IT cartel people that gets in the way of progress for developers. <laughs> so uh, I understand that and sympathize because I kind of sit on both sides of that fence. So this is interesting because this would give the guidelines for the IT team to still, like you said, have a super simple setup that only needs, it's basically there to just deploy other clusters and run the centralized logging and monitoring that in a lot of ways is kind of boring for developers. They just want it to magically work, right? Which is why I'm a fan of the SaaS in that. No part. more excuses for IT. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And then you give the developer sort of freedom of choice and you say, hey, if you want to run Argo, it's up to you. It's going to only be scoped to your namespace so you can't hurt other people and give yep. them sort of their own little sandbox that they can just, you know, at, to their own detriment to in certain ways. Oh, I was just going to say, I've always been really interested by that Netflix model of, you know, if you talk to their SREs there, they have a central set of services that they provide, you know, and so if you don't want to figure out how to deploy your app, they have a way for you to do that, but they have that freedom and responsibility thing, right? So like, if you can think of a better way to do it than what they're mm -hmm. offering you or one that fits your use case better, you can do that, but you're also on the hook for it working, you know? And I think that's really interesting. I, I think that one of the really big values for us is just enabling developers, right? And that's why the self-service thing is such a a big point for us because these things affect people's velocity, but they also affect people's happiness. If you're stuck in one of those situations like you described where the IT overlords are telling you to do something that that you don't really want to do, that like hurts, right? Right. Like, that can really bring you down. And I think that that's something that people don't talk about enough is what is the cost productivity wise of somebody like not being happy doing their job, you yeah. know? We both got the nice long beers. We've been around this block a while. For the last 25 years, all I've been doing is trying to get out of the way of developers wanting to get their stuff done, but helping them manage it in a way that isn't going to get everyone in trouble and put data at risk, right? So there's that constant tension. That's why the DevOps spoke to so much, that, that word and the idea spoke so much to us all was that, yeah, let's not throw things over the fence and be adversarial. Let's work together for this. And Kubernetes is, I have teams now where they've got their own data centers. They're not cloud they're not doing everything in the cloud. Uh, for those of you out there that think that everything's in the cloud, it's totally not. There's tons of data centers everywhere. <laughs> and their challenge is they want to give the developers the way to scale up and down Kubernetes and like roll their own Kubernetes whenever they want. But when they're doing that, that now means they have to deal with the VMwares and the, they have to deal with provisioning VMs and provisioning physical servers and all that. And they're, I think they're all really searching for this model of how can I provision a bunch of things and then let the developers do what they want with Kubernetes without the risk of them basically having complete 
root VM SSH access, right, to all the machines and letting them do whatever they want there. And this is, I love this idea of the sandbox. So we've got tons more questions, but I really want to get to demos. <laughs> so first of all, I think we already got that with hierarchical namespaces. Namespaces are not virtual clusters, not the same thing. I gave a talk at, you know, KubeCon North America in LA last year, and I used a slide deck to essentially emphasize that part because the official Kubernetes docs was actually listing that namespaces are virtual clusters. And when I read that sentence in kind of preparation for the talk, I'm like, no, <laughs> we can't say that. Namespaces are not clusters. And it's under important to understand namespaces are essentially just scopes for names. That's really how I see it. Versus, mm -hmm. and that's actually what that was further down somewhere in the Kubernetes documentation, but I feel like that should have been the first sentence. But then there are a lot of cluster-wide objects, and there's actually a way for kubectl to tell you which resources are cluster-wide and which one are namespaced. You can essentially run these kubectl commands with the namespace true or false flag, and then Kubernetes will give you a list of resources, right? Um, yeah, so that, that was from the talk. We actually saw that statement, right? And we even got that fixed after KubeCon. I told people, hey, go ahead, fix it's docs, right? <laughs> if you go to the docs now, it has a much better version of uh, describing what a namespace is. What we're essentially doing with virtual cluster is to run a control plane inside another Kubernetes cluster. So when you take a regular Kubernetes cluster, right, we have an API server, and then we have a data store like etcd, right, it's a standard backend for Kubernetes. And then we have a controller manager, which controls our replica sets. And then we have a scheduler, which essentially schedules our pods to the different nodes in our cluster. And then we have the workloads, right, which are separate from our control plane. And we typically launch namespaces to essentially run, you know, pods in them. And typically we don't have just one namespace, we have multiple of them. That's how a regular Kubernetes cluster looks like. What we do with virtual cluster is now we think about, okay, what if we don't talk to that Kubernetes API server down here and run kubectl commands against it? What if we instead spin up a control plane that runs as a pod inside of a namespace? That means we have an API server that runs as a pod inside of a namespace inside of Kubernetes. And now we can talk to that API server, right? That's this core idea. If you understand that, you pretty much know what a virtual cluster is, right? It's a little bit more complicated in the details when you're actually thinking about what how does this control plane look like? So in the easiest case, vCluster is just has a host namespace. It can be any namespace in your cluster that you're creating for it. And then you're deploying a stateful set and you're deploying a service because that's the service you're actually, you know, talking to with your kubectl commands pointing at that service. And then that stateful set you're spinning up essentially has the API server and the controller manager. And that's where you pick, you know, K3S, K0S, upstream Kubernetes, EKS, right? can be any of these distros. But as you may see, there is not uh, a scheduler there, right? We're not using the scheduler of K3S or the scheduler of EKS, right? We're only using the API server and the controller manager, and we're hooking it up to a data store. So that means when I'm writing something to my, you know, K3S API server, it writes it into a separate SQLite in the easiest case, which is just mounted as a volume to that pod or it could be my SQL database, or you could, you know, deploy a fully fledged etcd in separate pods, right? There are multiple ways to do that. But the big difference to a regular cluster is we don't have a scheduler. Instead, we have a so-called syncer. And the syncer is really what makes the virtual cluster virtual and what makes vCluster its own distro, because the syncer, instead of connecting to the nodes directly, 
and being able to manage these nodes and being able to like a full cluster, right? Instead of that, it essentially just synchronizes your workloads down to the underlying host namespace. That means when I create a pod inside my virtual cluster, what it does, it creates an entry in my virtual clusters, a data store here. So we have an entry for this pod in our virtual etcd or SQLite. And then the syncer sees that and synchronizes the pod down to the host namespace. So it talks to this API server to actually create a pod. But all the higher level objects are the things that are creating pods, deployments, stateful sets, all these kind of things they stay entirely virtual inside this data store. They will not be synchronized down. That's in a nutshell what a virtual cluster is about. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from, we do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now gonna jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo. So just to be clear, when before you ran that first vCluster command, there was nothing in this EKS cluster that was vCluster related, right? Like it's not, it's not like there's a no. controller running vCluster at the cluster level of EKS. So you could technically do, not that I'm, I'm not advocating for this people, but technically, you don't need the cluster admin's permission to run vCluster in your namespace if you've been given namespace control. Exactly. So that, the sync service I makes way more sense to me now. It actually boosts a lot so. of the vCluster adoption, right? Because if you're an engineer and look, if you're an engineer and listening right now, right? IT is not giving you the CRDs you want, right? <laughs> Literally go download that CLI, right? <laughs> there you now go. you have vCluster. This is, this is like turning from a DevOps stream into a shadow IT stream. It's, <laughs> Well, maybe that's the maybe that's the the way you get famous is here the shadow IT the shadow cluster. Maybe that was a better name. We should have called it like that. We should have called it like that. Yeah, you need the permission to create a stateful set and a service, right? Yeah, that's what you need in your host cluster. And when you have that permission, you can create a V cluster. And inside that V cluster, how your cluster admin now? Congrats. Yeah, and, and obviously, like people were talking about production here. You know, the things that go off in my head are like, okay, my EKS cluster maybe has three etcd nodes and three, multiple redundant APIs or you know, schedulers or whatever. Like I've got all that redundancy built in, multi-node and all that. But in this case, we well, a couple of things that I'm thinking out of the box is like, one, your API didn't, so your internal, your vCluster API isn't exposed outside of the physical cluster. So it's a nested access problem a little bit there, right? I'm, is, that a, is that something that you can do out of the box where it just says, oh, I'm going to use a service so that my vCluster API is also accessible outside the, yeah. the cluster? Is that a thing? Yeah, that was probably a feature request number one after we launched. <laughs> I think it's super like, easy. You know, yeah, yeah I, I guess it, I mean, so the problem you're seeing here is an engineer. So in, in a lot of cases, IT may not even want to give you a namespace. Right? right. And they may want to give you a separate EKS clusters at this point, because that's what they know how to do, right? They, they spin it up via Terraform. There's ways to authenticate with AWS, right? If you are talking about sharing clusters now, that's a lot more things to set up, right? You need to have network policies, resource quotas, all these things to restrict these namespaces. Creating a virtual cluster, and then if you want give to give it to the engineer, they somehow need to be able to do port forwarding in this case, right? So they still need to have access to the underlying EKS cluster to start the port forwarding. Obviously, that's a little annoying. So what you can essentially do is you can create an ingress, which points at that service, right? 
And then you can authenticate that ingress with the regular methods that you have, an Nginx ingress controller, stuff like that. Our product adds a feature for that as well in, on the commercial side of things. And that way you can spin up these virtual clusters and people can get a cube context to directly you know, talk to the virtual cluster without having to start port forwarding first and setting up their cube config locally. That's even easier, of course. Yeah, we've already got enough levels of proxies and emulation and translation, all this stuff. So it, it sometimes when we get to these levels where it's like, I'm running on a virtual machine with a with the cluster, with a virtual cluster inside that cluster, how many ingress rules and proxies do I need for one website to, to be available on the internet? Yeah, yeah. so th this actually is really Which cool. actually did something funny on that end, right? Like you did the nested virtual cluster, right? Virtual cluster and virtual cluster. I, I remember it was one of the first things that Rich tried when he joined the company. There's a video on YouTube if you search for vCluster Inception where I actually run, I set up a virtual cluster like this one and then I create another virtual cluster inside of that one. So, so in case you're, because this is real, I know of organizations where they have the main IT that runs the EKS clusters, then the dev team has that DevOps person, right, who needs to hand out multiple, one cluster for each dev so that they can have their own little play area, and they manage it. So now you've got a V cluster and a V cluster and a, inside of a real cluster. I hate to say real cluster as if it's not real, but whatever. Prime, the prime cluster. All right, let's see. Let's see what some questions that we can find that are related to this. Do workloads persist when you restart or upgrade the V cluster? Oh yeah. So there's two ways to do this. We spun it up via the CLI right now, but if you're actually going through, you can go through the documentation and deploying a V cluster. You can basically just run Helm install yourself, right, to deploy the Helm chart, or you can literally just run kubectl apply and create that stateful set in the service, right? Of course, it's easier with the CLI, but the default value that we're setting for in our Helm value is to mount the persistent to host. In K3S's case, we use a SQLite database to host your like your etcd replacement and if that's in a persistent volume that's gonna even if the v cluster gets rescheduled the part of the v cluster dies it essentially mounts that same volume again and all your data is still there but you can also disable that and that makes it truly ephemeral and that means when you're pur purging the virtual cluster all the data is gone when you're spinning uh, when it restarts right it kind of depends a little bit on your use case if you want to use it for a cicd and it's like a one-off thing run my integration tests for 10 minutes right you may not even need that persistence, but in most cases we see people just let the persistence be enabled, which is our default value. And then you can restart the pod, purge it, right? The stateful set will create a new pod and all your data will still be there. Nice. All right. How does persistence work specifically on storage? Yeah, that's a good question. So obviously we're translating pods, right? From the V cluster, we're copying pods, right? from the V cluster to the underlying cluster. And there's lots of options on how to configure. In terms of storage, what you would typically do is you have storage classes in Kubernetes. When your persistent volume claims, they either use the default storage class or they specifically specify a storage class. In your V cluster, you could have, so by default, you're just seeing all the storage classes of your underlying cluster, right? So you can essentially, you know, use the use the storage classes of your underlying cluster. If you don't specify one, it would use the default one. So if I create, let's say I create a deployment uh, in that, or I create a stateful set and that one creates a pod deployment with persistent volume claim template, that would create a persistent volume claim. And we see that it is required for that pod to start up. So would, we would also create that persistent volume claim with the syncer, right? So the syncer always checks what does this pod require in the underlying cluster? 
and would create these resources as well or copy them. The same counts for, let's say, a mount a secret in my pod, right? Obviously, I need that secret in the underlying cluster now to be able to mount it, right? So the syncer would also sync that specific secret. But it wouldn't sync all the secrets and everything. It essentially only syncs these things that are required to start a pod. Nice. Well, we answered this one, I think. Can vCluster run vCluster? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah, we're doing that all the time. Is... I do that a lot for demos as well. <laughs> yeah, is there a, I'm not even thinking about this. Is there a resource name size limit? Because if you're running a oh, vCluster inside a vCluster inside oh, a vCluster, eventually your name eventually is Eventually like, you're going to hit a limit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if a 255 natural limitation on the, Anyway, never tried it. But so, someone let us know. Someone run 10 V-clusters nested all the way down. <laughs> By the way, uh, every V-cluster you create, uh, time goes one-tenth the speed. And then, oh, I'm sorry, that's the movie inception. I'm getting confused. Create. Yeah, the funny thing is, it's not having a performance hit for the actual pods, right? Because the pods would be, let's say you have two V-clusters, right? VC1 and then VC2 inside of it, right? If you create a pod now in VC2, that would be synced to VC1, that would be synced to the host cluster, but then the actual pod has no performance hit, right? Right. You have just this additional hop in terms of sync, but that's like the control loop with Kubernetes is asynchronous anyway. So if that just takes like, instead of 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, right. you won't even notice that. Yeah, that, that's a good point too, because this isn't like nested virtualization. This isn't true hardware right. virtualization where we're at the point of the kernels have to do special things for this. This is just regular apps. That like That's why I was saying earlier, like an IT pro running the physical infrastructure We'll just see these as regular pods. They're all going to be able to do a PS from the command line at root and be able to see all the apps still running. It's not hiding or obscuring anything really. And that to me is all good stuff. Does vCluster create virtual nodes and does a vCluster share the same nodes as its host cluster? Oh, that's a, that's an really, awesome really question. Good questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love those questions. By the way, we have a big architecture section in the documentation. So if you want to know how storage works in details or nodes work in details, you want to get a list of when our resources synced and what are the conditions for them being synced, right? It's all documented here. In the case of nodes, that's a very, very interesting point because we essentially, so you have to understand the syncer syncs in both direction, right? So when we sync a pod down, that pod is being scheduled now by the regular cluster scheduler to some node, right? But then it could have an image pull error, an image pull back off, or any kind of scheduling error. Like a lot of things can go wrong, right? right? So what we also do is we synchronize the status up, right? And part of the status is on which node is this pod running, right? Nice. <laughs> and the default option in vCluster is we show you inside the vCluster only those nodes that your pods are actually running on. So let's say your IT could configure. So let's say you, you tell vCluster, you can tell vCluster certain things. You can tell it, show the user inside the vCluster all the nodes, right? Mm. You could do a label selector with a node selector, sorry, for vCluster. And then the syncer would automatically attach a node selector to your pods during the sync process. That means you can restrict users to certain nodes or node groups, right? Without them even knowing that. They don't even have to right. configure that when they're creating their deployment it would happen automatically as part of the synchro process. And another interesting thing is there are also ways to add fake nodes, right? You can technically, so what we actually do by default is yes, we sync the nodes, 
but only the nodes that your pods end on. And because we want to obfuscate certain things, we copy the nodes, but we rename them. We make certain adjustments to their spec, right? So you're essentially seeing fake nodes to start with. But you can also tell vCluster, hey, show the people the real node specification, show them the real name. There are config options for all of this. There's a lot of YAML options that you can essentially tweak in our Helm chart and a lot of documentation, right? Use real nodes with a label selector, sync all real nodes, use fake nodes, right? There's a lot of ways on how you can tweak that behavior. So, okay, let me make sure I understand this. So the default behavior is that I will, inside the V cluster, I will see the nodes that the physical nodes of the real cluster, the prime, I'm going to call it prime cluster, the prime cluster that, that are running all of my workloads. And so I won't, if there's a, if there's a 30 node cluster that I'm running V cluster in, and it just so happens that I'm running two pods and they're running on different nodes, I'll see two nodes in the V cluster, right? Correct. Now, yes. the fake, now the fake nodes, is that so that I can, if I maybe only have like a access to one node on the cluster or my prime cluster is really only one node that inside V cluster, I can simulate multi-node setups essentially is that so like it's running a kublet yeah. or something does it actually yeah, run so there's two, uh, no it doesn't it would essentially the, yeah yeah essentially there's two things that you can do in terms of faking things one is that we just rename nodes from the underlying cluster that means we obfuscate a little bit that node right it's still like one-on-one -on -one mapping but you okay. don't see the actual node details you don't see oh this is a eks with this version but you don't see any of this information because we fake it all <laughs> Oh, and then okay, the other okay. the other part could be that you're actually adding fake nodes that don't even exist and map them. Look, you could add like three fake nodes and map them to the same real physical node, right? Okay. Like your actual underlying scheduler would schedule it all on a single node, right? But you feel like you have three nodes in your cluster. Yeah. That is something that is a little bit harder. It's, a, it's more of a manual process. The other thing with the obfuscating via names is basically set like a true false flag, right? The syncer can all that do that right. uh, by default already. Right. Okay. Okay. I think I'm still, I'm, I think I'm maintaining an understanding of what's happening here. It's my brain tries to start. Pretty related question. Are the expensive components, the nodes, this is an IT person, the mindset of, I got to run these nodes and justify the cost for them. Are they shared across the V clusters? If so, are there quotas or limits on memory CPU and a given V cluster can use? Yes, absolutely. So the cool thing about this is when you're thinking about it, the way you would typically limit things is with resource quotas in Kubernetes, right? Resource quotas in Kubernetes have the problem that they're namespaced. They're unfortunately a namespaced resource, right? So if you want to give a developer four namespaces, you can only set a limit in each namespace rather than having one limit for that particular developer, which is what you, as IT, you basically want to give a limit per team or limit per developer, right? rather than a limit per namespace, because how people are splitting stuff up on a logical layer is like, really, you don't, you couldn't care less, right? <laughs> but you really care about if someone's using 20 gigabytes or 30 gigabytes total, right? Right. So what you would do is you would create a resource quota in the host namespace where the virtual cluster is running, because all the pods that get created, no matter how many namespaces the user have internally inside their V cluster, right? all the pods end up in a single namespace and you can restrict them with a single resource quota pretty much. Uh, and yes, the nodes are shared, right? So this, like we said earlier, right? They end up, they get scheduled like regular other pods. You can have admission control on these pods, right? If the V cost, if you're creating a privileged pod inside your V cluster, for example, right? That's setting some security context parameters. 
you have two options there. You can either tell the vCluster synchronous strip it away, right? <laughs> For certain things, we do it by default. You can also enable, disable these things, right? Because we already kind of know they're bad, right? Yeah. And if you want to do some stuff on top, you can just have regular mutating and validating admission control inside that namespace. Nice. Both of these options still exist. Yeah. So as I understand it, you're saying one of the things you're saying too is a, a the prime clusters can have many V clusters per namespace. It's like a one to many, but it's the opposite isn't mm-hmm. true, right? I can't have one V cluster across many prime namespaces. If I'm making using this term, yeah. I'm making up, and I'm going to that's I'm right. Make, is this some bid to get Twitch Prime memberships or something? <laughs> is this well, maybe I'm a Transformers fan and I like Optimus Prime <laughs> and Rodimus Prime and all the other primes. Uh, you never know. You never know. We'll leave that up to the audience. Let them figure out why I came up with that. All right, I'm tracking all these questions. I think we answered the question of V clusters inside cloud systems. It sounds like yes, you can run in AKS, EKS, all, all the clusters, private clouds, air gapped environments. That was actually funny. Like as a company, like our commercial product, when we first shipped it, oh, we thought you know. We're not going to need like air gap and stuff like that. That's way down the road. Like our very first customer was like, no, half of our environment is air gapped or like no internet connections make that work for us. <laughs> so since then, everything we ship works in air gapped environments as well. <laughs> Got another question. I think we kind of touched on this, but can virtual nodes have different characteristics, say 16 CPUs when there's actually only eight CPUs in a node? Yeah, that's pretty, there's a lot of freedom and what you can fake there. Oh, but the question is, do you actually want to do that? <laughs> I think I said, you're kind of promising the V cluster a lot more resources that it can actually use that may have, you know, adverse side effects, I would call it, right. for the user inside of the V cluster. But yeah, I guess technically that's possible. Actually, if you're, you can write a plugin for V cluster and that completely lets you customize all that synchro logic. So right now, when you're using vCluster out of the box, that Synchro component comes with pre-equipped SANE standards that we put in place, all these things. And we expose certain flags where you can, you know, tweak the behavior a little bit. But if you want full customization, for example, you say, hey, I also even want that one CRD to be synced, right? There may be cases for that as well. Let's think of things like you have a multi-tenant Istio already running in your underlying cluster and some networking configuration needs to be synced for that to work, right? You can add a plugin for that and hook it into these V clusters. Same counts for nodes. If you want to do something custom there, you can write a V cluster plugin, completely customize everything. Nice. I think we've kind of answered this one. Where do you store persistent data? Config map secrets from etcd. I saw in, the, in your diagram there, you're creating an internal etcd or uh, SQLite or whatever you're uh, doing there. So that's probably just using a, a PVC from the parent or the prime cluster. Is that my assumption? Correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's a default data store. But you could literally also use like a, I don't know if AWS has a managed etcd service that you connect mm, to, right? Like right. it's up to you where you want to connect it to. Right. How do you dry run commands with server and client? Would that just be the same as a regular dry run cube control? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. All right. Rapid fire, rapid. If the pods are all in a non-virtual cluster, how well isolated are they from one another? I'm thinking of using use cases of pods handling sensitive data. Yeah, that's the regular uh, Kubernetes multi-tenancy problem, right? You're still having pods sharing a cluster. So vCluster abstracts the control plane, right? So you're having a lot of the Kubernetes resources now really securely isolated because they only exist virtually in your own data store. Nobody else can touch your virtual cluster. You can't touch anybody else's virtual cluster. You can't touch the underlying EKS cluster. It's a lot more secure already. 
But your workloads, in the end, if you launch a pod inside a vCluster, that pod gets spun up by the underlying EKS cluster, and now there's a network request to another namespace pod, right? You're just using the IP to connect to it, right? If you don't have a network policy in place in your underlying cluster, that will be possible, right? Like right. that is regular Kubernetes stuff that you need as pet in place. So we kind of see vCluster as an additional security layer rather as the only security layer, right? Mm -hmm. So it enables more secure multi-tenancy, but you can't forget about all the basics. You're still going to need network policies, resource quotas, right? Everything we talked about, you're still going to have that on the underlying namespaces, mission control to restrict the actual workloads that your engineers are spinning up. Right. Yeah. So I was just going to say, I, I have a friend who's a really big Kubernetes security nerd, and he was poking around at vCluster, and that was like the first thing he said, right, is that folks are definitely going to want to use network policies and admission control on the underlying cluster, just like yep. they would with anything else. The, the bottom mm -hmm. line is when it comes to things like compliance, every use case is different. Everybody's situation is different. It, it might turn out that this isn't hard enough multi-tenancy for mm -hmm. some use cases that people have, and maybe they'll have to have a dedicated cluster for that specific app, you know? So it's not necessarily going to solve every problem. Right. You're still vulnerable to kernel attacks. Like we've had a couple recently, sadly, <laughs> that you can escape, you can escape a, a pod in a container and that's not going, no, none of these abstractions are really going to help you with that. If you're still running multi-tenancy on the same physical node, right? There are limits to what Again, this isn't real virtualization. We're not doing hardware level virtualization here. All right, okay. a couple more rapid fire questions and we're going to have to wrap it up. I love all the questions. How about security? I think we kind of answered this one. Can you access data in that Nginx pod from the real Kubernetes? Because that's a real persistent volume. Well, if it had one, I don't think we'd give that, that example, but it's still a pod on the real cluster. It's still going to be a volume on the real cluster, right? Yes, your IT will still have access. If they're at cluster admin and EKS, they'll still be able to access your pod logs, your volumes in there, right? Everything that actually runs your workloads. One thing in terms of security, as a spoiler, again, I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm spoiling a lot on this show, actually. <laughs> we have a feature coming up called isolated mode because we've seen that a lot. You know, people still have to put network policies in place, resource quotas, all these things, right? And there are obviously a lot of cases where you want to tweak that. But in the easiest case, you just want like a base level of security set up. So what we actually sh will be shipping with version 0.7 of vCluster is the isolated mode. So our Helm truck will include like basic network policies, resource quotas, et cetera. So when you run that Helm install command or vCluster create, it doesn't just create a stateful set and a service. It also creates a network policy, resource quotas, limit ranges, everything that you need to isolate that virtual cluster a little bit more than you would do by just creating a state with sudden letting the user connect to the API server. I can see multiple applications of that, but it's like the number one reason so that in case you want to run multiple virtual clusters in a single namespace, that at least you're creating some sort of isolation. Is that kind of the primary or even in different namespaces right you want to prevent that the pods that your users are spinning up inside the v cluster they can't communicate with other uh, virtual clusters pods right whether that's in the same namespace or in a different namespace you just want to isolate each virtual cluster a little bit more than it is out of the box so you, we're adding yeah. kind of these underlying constructs to kubernetes as well so you're saying basically that if the it prime cluster doesn't have any namespace policies on it or network policies rather then you could still do that in vCluster to actually isolate your stuff from other stuff that you don't run. Maybe if you're only given that namespace, you could actually control this yourself. 
That's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, if your IT yeah, already has can... like namespace-based multi-tenancy in place, right? And they have rules and ways to automate that and set that up. That's fine. You won't need isolated mode. But we said it earlier, right? If your IT says, oh, we can't do that because it's insecure, right? <laughs> There's a way for them to kickstart things, essentially. That's the right. idea behind it. Yeah, and you can turn that on or off the isolated mode, so you don't have to use it if you don't want to. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And you're saying it's just an option at the command line, so that's basically like sort of some default policy. That's pretty nice. Let's ask another question. Syncing real nodes, AKS node pools with taints by node labels, on what level do the tolerations get forced into the workload? We're down the rabbit hole, people. On what level do it's, the tolerations it's, it's get forced? It's good that he made that donation because, he, yeah, <laughs> we should be billing him for this one. No, I'm just kidding. It's a great question. It is a good one. I wasn't going to yeah, ask so, anything about taints, but yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that would actually be enforced by the underlying cluster. You would see, I think you would see the information about that being the client in the events of the virtual cluster. So there's some visibility into, hey, why didn't this pod actually get scheduled? <laughs> you're going to see that information. You're also going to see it in the when you're describing the pod. You're going to see those events listed in, in your virtual cluster as well. So the mm -hmm. user will, will see what is wrong, right? Um, but we're also going to rewrite the names there if you're using fake notes. <laughs> if you're using right. the real names, it's fine. <laughs> if you're using the fake notes, we're also rewriting them there. Right. So in other words, I guess the syncer is syncing taint information as well so that you can yeah, see that it, inside it the depends on. It depends on what you configure, right? So mm -hmm. you could essentially adding that information in your... So do you see it on the node? Depends, right? I think our default is yes, no, I think we wouldn't show it to you because our default only shows nodes that actually have pods on them. If there's a taint mm -hmm. on there and you can't even schedule on there, you're not even going to see that node. Right. But you can enable to see all nodes and you can enable, you can disable fake nodes. Then you would make that information transparent or you would have a synchro plugin to customize what people should see, right? It's up to you the level of visibility that you want to add there. But for the underlying, you know, in the underlying cluster, that's actually where it would be enforced. The V cluster would not do any kind of logic on that end. It would literally just copy the pods back. You could add, you could tell it, please add it with a certain node selector and stuff like that, right? And that would be considered in your underlying cluster as well, including your taint, right? But the virtual cluster itself doesn't do any scheduling logic. Right. Right. And that's actually like a good tidbit, like for the show notes is it's passing scheduling on to something else. So there's not scheduling within scheduling within scheduling, which that in and of itself is hard to imagine the levels of complexity that you would get to pretty quickly. If I'm, if I've got taints inside taints inside taints, I just can't, I don't know that I could ever, <laughs> I'm used to proxies all the way down. I'm not sure about everything else. So there's, there's a meme in this somewhere. I yeah. know. Absolutely. I think Kubernetes in and of itself is kind of like meme, easy meme targets. So uh, this one I was wondering myself, and we may have touched on it. I'm going to ask, when you're thinking about the potential for things inside your V cluster needing to talk to other things outside the V cluster, yeah. what is the path for how a, and, he, and thank you so much, uh, person on the internet for saying prime cluster. Now it's a thing. Someone said it. So the V cluster pods, how do they communicate with, let's say, services on the prime cluster pods? Yeah, that's a that's an awesome question. So essentially what we do is besides syncing the pods, we so we spin up core DNS inside the virtual cluster. So the virtual cluster has its own internal DNS. So cluster internal DNS works just as expected inside the big cluster. But obviously because the virtual cluster is kind of sharing an underlying cluster, there is a curiosity around 
hey, can't we share certain things and others we keep separate, right? A good example is actually the ingress controller, for example. You don't really want every one of your users to spin up their own Nginx, and that would need a load balancer attached from AWS, right? <laughs> it has a right. lot of like complexity involved there, right? So you rather, IT just rather wants to say, hey, we create the load balancer, we create, we maintain Nginx, we maintain cert manager, right? And the user inside their virtual clusters is supposed to just create ingresses. In mm -hmm. that case, what we would do, and that's actually default enabled in vCluster because it's a very, very common case. But again, you can also disable that to have stricter isolation if you really want everybody to run their own right. ingress controller. Mm -hmm. If you want it to be shared, what we do is we synchronize the ingresses and we synchronize uh, the services as well, and we just rewire them. So that means we uh, essentially rewrite selector, like the label selectors mm -hmm. and things like that. We rewrite the service name when we sync it. So we rewrite the service selector inside the ingress after we sync it, right? Everything gets renamed and there's no collisions and stuff like that. But in the end, we wire it up so it works. It's, it's a most common case. Yeah. And then regular pod-to-pod IP-based communication works out of the box because your, you know, pods just run inside right. the EKS cluster. Everything is the regular networking inside your cluster. So my guess is the fully qualified domain names are getting pretty long at this point. If we're so like, is it like subdomains when you're inside a V cluster? If you're trying to talk to a prime cluster, you're essentially kind of like you do the names of the pods themselves. You're sort of nesting the the DNS scope. Yeah. So what you would do for, let's say you want to share. So one way is what I said, the ingress controller, like traffic comes into your pod, but then there's the other way your pod wants to connect to a shared service. So let's say you have IT says like, Hey, Kafka is really hard to maintain and very costly. So we're going to run that for you. Right? right. And now your pods need to connect to a service of that Kafka cluster. Right. And then the question is, how do you do that? The way how we suggest you do it is you create a Kafka service inside the virtual cluster. You just create a service and you tell the cluster, please sync that service, right? By default, we have a service sync enabled. So we would already sync that. And the only thing you need to tell the V cluster is please don't adjust the uh, selectors, right? Mm. Don't do that magic with translating selectors because it would mess it up. Please leave it like it is and point it at the real thing. And then okay. it works out of the box. Your cluster internal DNS is going to now see that service. Your name is actually very short, right? When you're actually okay. coding with it and writing your pod, it would be very, very short. Because for you, it's just a regular service inside your vCluster. And it's just up to configuring vCluster to not mess around with that particular shared service. Right. right. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's because, yeah, names in Kubernetes are long enough if you're trying to use cross namespace DNS names. Because I'm, th I'm thinking of, yeah, like the monitoring servers, the logging servers, how do I connect yeah, to all those? Of and course. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're going to have to get into there. Thank you so much for that question. All right. I think we're on the last one. How is pods in, we've kind of answered this already, I think a little bit. How is pods in vCluster isolated from scheduler from the primary cluster and how primary scheduler relates to vCluster? So if you haven't watched the whole show, we covered a lot of this stuff, but what, could you give me like the, the short answer? Yeah, I guess the short answer is we don't have a scheduler inside the vCluster. We copy pods down to the real cluster and then the real scheduler actually schedules that pod, right? Yeah. So that's kind of how it relates. And then we get the status information from that pod and sync it up to the, you know, virtual pod inside the vCluster. That's kind of how it works. Yeah. That sounds like the real yeah. work and the magic of, of this solution is that yeah, the, the sync there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's that, yeah, again, that internal data store inside the vCluster and 
that state is just getting synced back and forth to the, the host cluster. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for everyone from all those questions. You've been amazing today. Let's just recap. We can get more information on vCluster at vcluster.com, right? Exactly. That's the website. Yeah. We have a Slack channel as well. Feel free to join that if you have any oh, detailed great. questions. Yeah. I know that those questions were pretty deep. We do charge by the hour in the Slack channel. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> no. The software is free, but we're not. Very nice. And it's stored on GitHub so people can go take a look at the open source project and get involved, look at, create some more feature requests because clearly for a project that only, would you say, less than a year old, it sounds like you've covered yeah. a lot of the edge cases or at least what I would maybe classify some of the edge cases. So it, it sounds like a pretty great project. I'm going to have to find a reason yeah, somewhere. Yeah, the nice thing too is with the plugin SDK that, that kind of lets you deal with the rest of the book, right? So the ones that we haven't gotten to, the edge cases, a lot of those you can address yourself by by writing plugins. Yeah. And thank you so much to both of you for being on the show. For those that haven't checked out Loft Labs, go check them out, as well as vCluster. So thank you all for showing up. Thanks for all the great questions. We will be back here again in future Thursdays. By the way, for Lucas and Rich, you can see their Twitter handles in the show notes. So go bug them on Twitter. I'm sure they're glad to answer all your questions for gratis. So come back and join us, won't you? Thanks again, guys. Great to see you. Thank you and for inviting us. Yeah. And we will see each other on the internet. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.